Worship songs don't last as long as they used to. The average lifespan of a widely sung worship song is about a third of what it was just 30 years ago. Well, hey, Outpost Theology listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall, back for another episode at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. And uh, this month, we're talking about worship songs, the songs that we sing, the ways that they shape us in the church. And to talk about that, I've got a couple guests with me, Mike Tapper from Southern Wesleyan University and Mark Jalakur from Moncton Wesleyan Church in Atlantic Canada. Did I did I get all that right, guys? 100% top to bottom. Nailed it. Well done. Awesome. Well, I, I'm not good at the, the pronunciation of French names as we've established <laughs> prior to hitting record. <laughs> so, hey, it's good to it's good to have both you guys on the podcast. I've known Mike for several years, a fellow professor in the in the realm of higher education and gotten to know Mark a little bit online. Uh, but first time we've actually seen each other's faces uh on Zoom. So uh, the article that kind of brought me in touch with you guys' work is out in the latest edition of Christianity Today. And the title that they've given to it is Shouts to the Lord Get Briefer. A new study, (laughs) I guess, I don't know what you want to do with that. A new study (laughs) shows the lifespan of worship songs is shrinking. Uh, Why is that? So uh, I know this kind of is based loosely upon some research that you guys have done on worship songs. And I wonder if uh, if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about that research, why you embarked upon it, and and what you were hoping to to learn in the process. Sure. Well, um, to start with, Josh, I would say that this has been a project that's been developing, emerging over the last probably decade. For for me, um, my work has been in and around contemporary worship music here for the last 10 years or so. Um, Rendition number one was primarily a focus on the lyrical dynamics of the music that we're singing. Um, And that kind of culminated in maybe 2018 or 19. Uh, Rendition number two was uh, really prompted by a gift that we received from a worship uh, a worship expert, a worship studies expert, he gifted us with um, CCLI top 100 lists all the way back to 1988. So mm-hmm. we had this this huge data set that we were gifted with all the way up to the present. And um, and Mark and I and a few other uh, really great people, we had two data analysts in the project, and we had a uh, a worship a music expert on the West Coast who's been in and around music for the for quite a while. We all gathered together and we were like, well, what do we want to do with this? And uh, out of it emerged uh, some questions in and around like the the lifespan of the songs. And so what we did essentially was we took the uh, we took all of the data sets that we that we had the whatever it was, 64, I think, top 100 lists. And then we let our data analysts do some magical things uh, with the study. And um, and then we essentially, we established what the life curves of the songs were. So we isolated and we identified songs that had a legitimate start, uh, a real and legitimate rise, a peak, a fall, and a finish. Uh, 
And uh, when we were able to co collate all of those things together, um, we were able to identify some really, really intriguing trends uh, from the from the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And one of the the takeaways from the CT article, I know you've got another larger article coming out in Worship Leader magazine. Correct? When does that come out? It's supposed to be in the January. Uh, we'll call it their winter edition, which might be out in January, but it'll be out definitely throughout the winter. Gotcha. And folks will have to check that out, especially if you're a worship leader or a pastor. One of the takeaways, obviously, from the CT article that I read a sentence from previously is that we just don't sing songs as long as we used to in terms of their lifespan in our whatever you want to call it, in our liturgy, in our service order for Sunday mornings, if you want to use the the stage vernacular, in our set list, uh, they don't they don't appear for as long as they used to, or songs used to appear for maybe well over a decade, uh, or if we're talking about hymns for probably many decades or even, you know, um, hundreds of years, even now they show up, we sing them and they sort of, they're gone and they pass out of our liturgy or our worship much more quickly. Uh, that's, that's sort of the fact that the data has sort of, shown. Uh, one of the things I was interested in, maybe even more interested in is why is that? And mm. why does it matter for the, the church, the, the shaping of our theology? Uh, we're all three kind of associated with the Wesleyan tradition. And it's it's been said that Wesleyan theology was sung long before it was ever, you know, inscribed in theology textbooks or systematic theologies. It's always been a sung tradition. Mm. Um, so I guess that's my question. Why is this lifespan shrinking so much? And then secondly, why does that matter for the shaping of the church as a body? Well, first of all, you tipped your hand very early on in that question by re referencing set lists. Uh, like, cause not everybody knows that you yourself, you cut, you cut at least several teeth as a worship leader. Uh, and so, uh, you have a life, you, you have obviously a bit of a vested interest and some experience in this. And so it'd be interesting to hear some of your thoughts as we go here. But, um, it's also really interesting that you kind of dip into the idea that Wesleyan theology was kind of a sung theology. Um, Part of something we haven't really delved into a lot. I mean, Mike and I have had a lot of conversations about this amongst ourselves and also with other people like yourself. But one of the things we haven't really talked about a lot is, yeah, this seems like it could be reaching, um, we talk about a boiling point or a point of disintegration, or at least a point where it's like, wow, this is getting, these things seem to be compressing so much, like what could possibly be next? Uh, but it's not brand spanking new. Hmm. Uh, in other words, these are extensions of trends that go way, way back, like way back beyond 1988. So if part of our kind of Wesleyan heritage is in creating new liturgies, new songs that will kind of fit their vibe, you got to know that there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of people at that point in time who were saying, we just don't sing them like we used to, right? So like this definitely, however far back this curve goes, it, it, it goes a lot further back than the 30 years that we looked at today. We, that we're talking about today. Um, that being said, these, you know, we kind of kind of lump a lot of the why um, to around three different kinds of things. It's really, really complex. <laughs> um, so like, it's hard to say what 
all of the things could be, but three buckets, technology, industry, and culture, technology, industry, and culture. So uh, technology, it's pretty easy to kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, the internet wasn't really much of a thing in 1988. You and I are now, the three of us are speaking and looking at each other speak over the internet right now in real time, thousands of miles apart. Fascinating, right? So technology has changed a whole boatload of stuff. We don't really need to rehash. Although, I mean, there's some things that, <laughs> like for example, the overhead projector. Without something like an overhead projector, even if we're talking about the old school cellophane one or like slides, like without the ability to to quickly generate the ability to sing new songs together on a Sunday morning, uh, hymn books were kind of your only game. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't think of the overhead projector as a piece of technology that would help move these things forward. But I would submit that it's at least one of the many, many kinds of technologies that would have moved it forward. So technology, industry, um, there are whole cottage industries, but also like multi-million dollar industries that revolve around the production and distribution of worship music, as you know. Mm -hmm. So not just not just the like the recording and releasing of of worship songs. And I mm -hmm. should say very clearly, I'm not actually saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm simply stating the fact that this is kind of how it goes. So not just the the recording, the writing, and the releasing of those songs, but the resourcing of people like myself to be able to do those songs with their congregation on a Sunday morning. Companies like Multi Tracks, um, Song Select, to create the resources, uh, blogs that will help give you the kind of songs that you might want to sing on a Sunday morning. All those things now exist. And mm -hmm. once you create a kind of industry, you need to, content to move through that industry, right? Mm -hmm. So like, there's a, a bit of a chicken or egg scenario there in terms of how that can be factored together. So then there's also just the kind of broader culture. There's a culture of our churches uh, and also the culture around us that is kind of I don't know if you've noticed, but they kind of get tired of things a little faster than maybe they used mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. uh, so those three things together, I mean, we could unpack a lot more. But your second point to that is like, so why? You know, why did it happen? But mm -hmm. why? Why does it matter? I think Mike could probably hop in with a little bit of the why it might matter for us. Yeah, I mean, Josh, we've talked some about this, and maybe I'm, I presume that your listeners have, have processed this as well. I'm as convinced as ever that we're getting a lot of our theology from the music that we're singing. It's not the only portal. It's not the only way that uh, we're gaining it, but we know, and there's all kinds of statistics to suggest that we're increasingly a biblically illiterate society. Um, so if we're not reading our Bibles and neurologically speaking, if we're not retaining information nearly as comprehensively as we, as we used to, then we're getting our theology, at least hopefully from somewhere. Hmm. And, um, and I'm convinced, I mean, I've, I'm of the opinion that the music that we're singing um, really is, it is important because um, it's a, it's a primary way that uh, our theology is, is evolving and, and developing. Oftentimes people say, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I'll often challenge them then with, uh, with a few questions. I say, go take, ask 10 random people. Um, what, uh, ask them like three common scriptures, uh, Romans 12, one and two quote it. Um, first question, quote a few scriptures. Second question, uh, what did your preacher 
topic, not content. What did your preacher preach last week? Topic. <laughs> and then three, you know, fill in the blank. You call me out upon the, um, <laughs> and you know, eight or eight or nine out of 10 will have a pretty quick response to the script, to the, um, to, to the, to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, most won't have real good capacity to comprehend uh, even last week's message. Yeah. And I mean, uh, even if I'm the one who preached last week. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Ask, yeah. Ask, ask 10 pastors, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the scripture too, obviously. So the lyrics and the music that we're singing, it means something. If, if it's passing in and out quickly, I mean, we've got to ask some questions about that. It, either we're processing things really fast and we're getting it or maybe something else is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, Oklahoma Wesleyan University has degrees not only for our on-ground traditional students in our Bartlesville campus, but also degrees that are entirely online. And you can check those out through our Graduate and Professional Studies Program, or GPS. Some of the degrees that are offered are Graduate Degrees in Doctor of Nursing Practice, Master's in Business Administration, Master's in Education, Master's in Nursing, and a Master's in Strategic Leadership. We also have undergraduate degrees in Business Administration, Ministry and Leadership, and many more. The bottom line is you don't have to come to our campus in Bartlesville, Oklahoma to get the benefit of an Oklahoma Wesleyan education, an education centered on Christ, on scripture, truth, and that prepares you for the vocation that God has called you to. Just go to okw.edu slash GPS to find out more. Well, you mentioned, I mean, that's a great, that's a great sort of series of questions to show the power of music to function as a kind of mnemonic device or a vehicle by which ideas become sort of ingrained in our consciousness, you know, cause it's like way easier to remember the song lyrics than it is to remember the sermon content or even the scriptural uh, words. And, you know, students talk about, Oh, I just, I can't memorize stuff very well, but like at the same time, like my four little kids, I've memorized every single line of the musical Hamilton, even the words they probably shouldn't know (laughs) (laughs) that are not age appropriate. Don't judge me, but you know, they can memorize an entire musical uh, by hearing the songs, you know, and yet, you know, we do, we struggle with memory in other areas, but that you mentioned the factors, well, you know, the three factors that, that Mark, uh, mentioned uh, industry, uh, culture, and then what was the third one? Technology. I remember it like this tick as in tick, tick toe, T I C, technology, industry, and culture. Yeah. Well, on the cultural Speaking piece, of mnemonic devices. That's, yeah. If I could only just sing that, then I would really remember it. <laughs> <laughs> the cultural piece, uh, Alan Jacobs down at Baylor University has written his latest book, Breaking Bread with the Dead. Um, and he's he talks about what he calls presentism, mm-hmm. uh, presentism as a func- as a factor within culture now where we're sort of just fixated upon the present moment, uh, the present scandal, whatever that is today, you know, uh, the present issues in politics or in whatever. But he seems to be saying also in his work that that 
that bandwidth is getting smaller and smaller um, in a variety of areas. And one of these would be, I think you see this in like whatever is the huge outrageous scandal or issue of outrage on Twitter or on social media, like two weeks from now, we won't even remember what it was. It will have completely moved on to like three other new outrage inducing things. And I wonder how much that presentism connects to the issue of the fact that the things that we sing now are just sort of here today, gone tomorrow, you know, we're on to the next new song. Um, do you yeah. think there's a net loss in that for the church? Or do you think it's just, eh, I mean, it is what it is. And we'll, we can keep writing new and hopefully better songs. So it's, it's not a net loss. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't really want to be negative Nancy's coming into this. Like this really wasn't our goal. Like, Hey, let's bring everybody down. That'll be fun. Really up our credibility online. Uh, so we tried to approach it with a, a, a genuinely open mind. Um, and we should also might be a good opportunity to say, I don't think this is everyone's experience. So some of the conversations we have with some people who are like, Hey, my church is a hundred percent still rocking Lord. I lift your name on high. And that's like, <laughs> like we're doing it like on the bi-weekly. And you're like, you know what? That's so now we had a conversation with, uh, I don't know, roughly a hundred Wesleyan pastors, um, a few weeks back. And I pulled, we did an instant poll with them and it was something like 97 to 98% other people said, this is representative of my experience. And so within our denomination and thus kind of within our sliver of, of evangelicalism, I think it's pretty normative, but it's we're by no means trying to say this is definitely what everybody's experiencing. Um, that being said, the that term of presentism is is good. Um, and I I think we might view it, it it's a double-sided coin that you could view as either a, a positive virtue or sort of a bit of a vice. And the positive virtue is we can be engaged culturally at a level that we've probably never been able to be engaged culturally in the past. So we can really like, and that's a that's a virtue. That's something that we talk about constantly in our churches. We want to be relevant, right? We want to be able to be able to be connected with. We don't want it to seem super foreign and like weird when people kind of come into our churches. So uh, the cultural language of music is something that we we try to keep at the forefront of something. And this this goes way beyond music, right? This is constantly the architecture of our churches. This is the way that we preach. This is the the language that we use during our welcome times and during our prayers. You know, we're constantly trying to make it relevant and understandable to the broader culture. So if that's a if that's something we're shooting for, I'd say we are at peak. <laughs> this is we are living our best life now in terms of that. The the other thing is, is that the song, like, and we often cite this as an example, um, during the pandemic, uh, like the height of it, what uh, if you can call it that, in, in kind of early 2020, a song like "The Blessing" was able to become not just a national but an international anthem. You could almost say overnight. It was within a number, like a couple of weeks. It was being sung intercontinentally in all different kind of interdenominational churches would have never been a, a possibility in the past, right? To have this sort of like global anthem just kind of happen. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good thing, right? So like we can see how these are good things. Now, to be also the other side of the coin, these songs are obviously 
moving out of our consciousness a lot faster than they ever have before. So Mm -hmm. my particular church, which I try to reference as little as possible, we've sung the blessing, I think a grand total of like seven times in our services. And I don't know how many more times we'll sing it in the years to come. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that our Sunday morning experience is not the only time that people engage with worship music now, which is kind of a sideline that we could talk about. But nonetheless, what I'm trying to get at is 10 years down the road, will the melody and the, the content of the blessing be something that will easily come to people's minds when they need it? Unlike maybe your children's facility with Hamilton, I don't know how long that will last with them. Maybe they'll be able to quote that into their 50s and 60s as well. I don't know. Um, but we, I think we're trying to say that that's part of what worship music is not only a mnemonic device, right? It's also there to do a, a ritual kind of that's not just about us. It's also part of our worship experience. But we have to admit that we are using this in some respects so that when you're on your deathbed or when you're in your car after your divorce talk, or you know when you're praying for your sick friend, you have these kinds of things that you can pull. And if they're not there because they're cycling so fast, I think that might be a problem for us, mm-hmm. or at least something that we need to wrestle with. You bring up an interesting point with the blessing because the blessing is a new song, but it's in many ways an ancient thing because it's from Numbers chapter six. You know, it's the sort of ironic benediction from numbers and so it's a fusion of the very 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 old with some newer instrumentation or melody mixed in there um i'm i'm struck always because i'm i'm an academic and i have a foot in that world and when i talk to people on the podcast like so many of the other professors that i talk to um, there's a move in their life from, they started very much in like low church Protestantism. I don't know what, whether it was Southern Baptist or Methodist or Wesleyan or whatever. And then there's sort of this migration towards liturgy in all, in many of their cases, uh, you know, so many of my guests on here are, are Anglican, you know, it's like they found liturgy. Uh, later in life, and they found that refreshing. And they read N.T. Wright and thought he was cool, had a nice <laughs> accent, you know. Uh, so they all became Ang- Anglican. <laughs> and uh, and I saw that for sure in my grad school days, where it was like, you know, all the all the smart kids eventually become Anglican, uh, basically. And I've always been in this weird place because, despite going on to do the PhD and despite being in academia, there's always been this sense in which, in my musical worship i've always felt most at home in whatever you want to call it more kind of contemporary charismatic somewhat low church protestant you know that that's just for whatever for better or worse that's just kind of who i am in terms of my um where i feel most at home and so i think sometimes there's a risk in these conversations that it as you said, you didn't want this to be like a big downer. It's just like, hey, you know, the, this sort of stereotypical, the Simpsons meme where it's like old man yells at cloud. <laughs> it's like kids today, you know, all their songs are stupid and they're, you know, so, and I don't hear you saying that in the same way that I have to admit that I'm like, well, honestly, like I've, I feel a home in these kind of 
contemporary, even kind of charismatics. That's just me, you know? It's not that I can't enjoy liturgy, but is there, I guess the question would be, do you have kind of a prescriptive piece of advice for churches? So you've done the analysis. You're like, okay, here's here's something we've noticed based on the data. Here are some of the factors we think are driving it, right? Technology, industry, culture. Um, here are some of the maybe potential downsides, like you mentioned on your deathbed or on, in your car. Um, so keep in mind, I guess maybe the, the third move would be, do you guys have some advice for churches as uh, worship leaders kind of think through how they plan out the, the service? Yeah, that's great, Josh. And I'm with you. Um, you've just described my life in, in the academy, too. I have that pull um, in the same direction that, that you have. I'd have to say that as Mark and I and others have engaged with both those in the industry and in the worship studies world, um, I'm actually encouraged to see the evidence of the sort of deeper theological thought that uh, some of your listeners, I presume, because uh, they're listening to you as an awesome sauce sort of person, um, that they're inclined towards. I'm actually seeing that sort of deeper theological thought manifesting more, actually, in the music that we're singing. So somebody's somebody somewhere is talking to these songwriters, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit, who knows? Uh, is uh, prompting some of these folks to to write the sort of lyrics that we're singing singing today. So, yeah, we're not uh, Debbie Downing um, in in that respect. I often have people uh, come up. Maybe Mark, you have this too, where you know, out of a study like this, someone will curmudgingly will say, "What's the worst song that you can think of?" You know, and they're they're looking for you know this. You know, they want to be able to pin some some song as the worship the worst song the worst song ever but we're actually seeing some good comprehensive engagement um in and around some of this so the dialogue is actually encouraging and some of the evidence church um is actually quite quite encouraging to me so i'd want your listeners to hear that and maybe process what that's like I'm seeing more theologically robust stuff in our in our churches. I'm also encouraged, um, and I think your listeners should too. Uh, we're also seeing a lot more like songwriting seminars and guilds uh, that are emerging these days. I mean, even in our own tribe in the Wesleyan Church, we've got really really awesome folks like Josh Lavender, uh, name plug there, and Jordan Reif and. Taylor Wilding. These are all people that are connected to the Wesleyan um, Worship Project, and they're representing these this group of uh, really gifted songwriters who are actually creating distinctively worship uh, Wesleyan worship stuff. So, so that's that's really good too. Um, I guess, and then Mark, you you pick up. I'm also encouraged that I see at least, and maybe I'm only seeing a small vantage point here maybe perhaps but i'm actually seeing a lessening gap between the academy and the local church research so i mean this this study is a perfect example of of it i'm living kind of with my feet in both worlds in the local church and the academy but really truthfully most mostly in the academy um, mark's full throttle in the local church with his foot in the academy 
Um, so even the fact that this study is taking place, I mean, we had a high school math teacher in the mix um, and somebody in the industry at West. So um, I'm actually encouraged with the dialogue that's actually that's actually taking taking place. That sort of collaborative collaborative work that's occurring, not just in a little study like this, but around the world. I think personally marries some of the best aspects of the academic research and the local praxis stuff that's taking place on the ground. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mike is such a good guy. Man, he's a good guy. Yeah. So like the whole prescriptive piece, something that we can take a swing at here for a second, but if I can circle back two things, uh, Andrea Hunter, who's somebody who worked with us, who actually works with worship leader magazine, and she's kind of a contributor to the project. One of the things that she did point out, uh, a number of times, and I had to kind of have my eyes open to it, was something you alluded to earlier, Josh, which is, yes, there's a lot of new material coming and going, and yet how much of the material, like if you could kind of separate the melody lines and the lyrics, how much of the lyric is sort of being uh, purposefully repurposed? So mm -hmm. how much of it is scripture that is being used again? How much of them are hymns that are being chopped up and reused so that even though the... I think of those sometimes as the container and the content, even though the container might be shifting, the content is kind of moving along with it. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have a really good handle on that, but I think it's something that you could argue is at play. Uh, people like myself are often want to do hymns. It's like, hey, let's dig into it as well this Sunday, but let's not do, you know, we want to, we want to bring it forward, but we mm -hmm. want to, change the container a little bit. And so that's happening on a songwriting level as well, not merely arrangement. Uh, there's also sometimes some not uh, nefarious, but opportunistic reasons why songwriters might want to do that, but we can leave that alone for the time being. Um, the other thing is you allude to, I mean, we like this kind of like, listen, if you could see the kind of uh, worship services that I'm a part of programming, there's a lot of guitar and, and rock drums and synthesizers. And so I'm, I'm on board. I also go to my local Ash Wednesday service when it rolls around. So I feel the draw towards liturgy, but when it comes to the actual style, I mm -hmm. do like the style like you. And I think part of it is we're children of that style. Whether we literally grew up in churches that do this, generationally, we are the products of churches who have kind of blazed those trails. So we have this, it's kind of in our psyche and in our culture in a way that it was not the case for previous generations. And so we're wrestling with what to do with this now, a lot of mm -hmm. us as we move forward. So prescriptively, the only thing that I can say with any degree of confidence is just to be aware of it. Like mm -hmm. Mike brings up some awesome points about some of the Wesley worship projects that are coming and how they're trying to create songs that carry our distinctive mm -hmm. theology with them. Cause that's something that happens sometimes unthinkingly. We, we accept songs. It's funny that there are, I mean, I think it's funny that there are cessationist churches who will sing Bethel songs on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a, that's kind of a funny joke, yeah. right? It's kind of, yeah. that's like, that's hilarious <laughs> to me. Uh, but so we, it, we can see how there could be a benefit in creating kind of custom content for us, mm -hmm. but that's going to have a, which some of the positive things we talked about earlier, about having this sort of like digital hymn book, which is kind of fluid in some respects, but at least is shared across borders. There will be some cost if we decide to go a little bit more custom, to fit our tribes. Like you can't, you're not going to all of a sudden sing 
12 songs on a Sunday morning instead of five, right? Like that's not going to happen. So a lot of it comes down to selection and how we're going to choose. That's what I often think of worship leaders as in some respects is they're they're gatekeepers as much as they are anything else in terms of like selecting what content is going to make it into their repertoire. And that's not getting any easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, So be encouraged that it is hard, but it is really, really worthwhile to kind of partner well with the people who are doing your planning and to have some intention behind yeah. Uh, what you're doing, not to just simply let your top 40 lists decide what you're going to sing on a Sunday morning, but not to ignore those resources either. They, they're there for a reason. Yeah. Well, and somebody I've interviewed before on the podcast is Glenn Packiam out in uh, Colorado. And, and he's somebody who I think has done a great job of uh, just working to present what I would call kind of like a balanced diet of uh, liturgical resources using liturgical in the broad sense, you know, somebody who is born and raised in the charismatic tradition, you know, and yet um, discovered liturgy later in life and has done a great job of sort of blending those um, to give, to give his people, his parishioners, a kind of a balanced diet of, you know, the ancient and the new and the, um, but you mentioned others who were doing a great job as well, whether it's Jordan Rife or Josh Lavender. Um, I think, you know, New Room, uh, the New Room Conference has worked to do some good stuff with uh, music that is rooted in a tradition, but that can speak much broader than to just say Wesleyans or Charismatics or um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And I'm thankful personally that there's guys like you guys and many others that are, that are passionate about um, not just the books that your students are reading or your people are reading, but what the sermons they're hearing, but you know, the music and the the lyrics that, that we're singing. And uh, I think, as I said earlier, I think the Wesleyan tradition, especially is this has always been something that we were in the midst of because of Charles Wesley's hymnody sort of being the anthem that drove the movement um, more than more than say a systematic theology uh, textbook uh, for better or for worse. Hey, you did it. You made it through another episode of Outpost Theology. I want to thank you. I want to thank our guests today, Mike Tapper and Mark Jolliker, for talking about worship music. Be sure to look for their new article in Christianity Today called Shouts to the Lord Grow Briefer and the article in Worship Leader Magazine out in January of 2022. As always, I want to thank Oklahoma Wesleyan University for sponsoring this podcast, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. Thanks.